0: All right, welcome back to The Big Run and welcome back to another fascinating conversation. Thank you so much to all of your lovely responses to last week's episode with George Roden. It was a real pleasure to finally be able to share that. And if you haven't heard it yet, then then pause this, go back, listen to it because it's, it's an extraordinary, an extraordinary listen with a, an incredible individual. Today's guest is a veteran designer with decades of industry experience. He launched his own modern sportswear label 10 years ago to global acclaim, and he was a three time CFDA, the Council for Fashion Designers of America nominee, and then won the award in 2009, designing for the likes of J. Crew, Gap, Polo Ralph Lauren, and doing collaborations with Uniqlo and Topshop and about three years ago he was hired to be the head of Global Creative at the North Face, one of the most legendary outdoor brands that's been going for well over 50 years where he oversees the entire design output. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm thrilled and, and quite honoured and couldn't quite believe that he agreed to sit down and talk with me. Uh, so I'm delighted to welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Tim Hamilton. So Tim, thank you so much for for coming on the big run. I'm I'm really excited to to, to get into your journey and 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 talk about the North Face as, as a brand. I, f- I feel like I've it's been on my radar since since I was a kid growing up in in Liverpool in in the northwest of England. But we'll we'll come to that later. I think I'd I'd love to start to begin with with you and and with your journey because you've been connected to, before the North Face. You've been connected to fashion for a long long time. You had your own brand as well. So I, I'm curious to know where. Where did that interest in, in fashion and style kind of cultivate where, where was it born for you?
1: Yeah well thank you for having me um yeah if we go straight into it it, it goes back to my upbringing i
0: I came from a, a
1: diverse background my mother being Lebanese and my father being American um I found different ways growing up in a well not necessarily a small town but let's say a humble town in Cedar Rapids, Iowa which brought me to uh you know a level of being part of a big family and how do you kind of define and stand out and make your own kind of persona with you know what how you're dressed and Mm. um you know as a kid you know that that's super inspiring to think about because you know if you if you come from humble beginnings you wonder like you know, a state of dress of whether you're, you know, an athlete or, uh, an executive in New York or an actor or whatever, it does feel like you can kind of dress the persona that you want to achieve to be, to get you out of your, um, again, your humble beginnings.
0: Mm. So is was that was that what it was for you? Is like sort of adopting these different pers- personas with with how you presented yourself in the clothes that you were wearing? Is that where it was sort of percolating for you and seeing which kind of different personas you could adopt? What, what was the persona you were adopting when you were a kid growing up in Iowa? <laughs> well, you know,
1: I, I think, you know, growing up and being the youngest of seven, you, you naturally got a lot of hand-me-downs and I, I kind of rebelled towards that notion of, I'm going to wear something that was already used for my brothers or sisters. But I think for me, you know, music and just having, I grew up, you know, I'm Gen X, I'm a little bit older probably than you, but I I think that for me, I I wanted to um, adapt to something different than the norm and kind of not the norm that I was, you know, given. And I think that, um, you know, some of these kind of ideas of breaking out of that was, your dress like how you put yourself together and I, I guess to answer your question like what persona or what kind of vibe I was going for um in an early age um since on my Lebanese side we were part of an Islamic center uh, mosque that flew us to some of these trips outside of the U.S. it was my first time out of the U.S. as like a maybe it was like 10 um and they flew flew us to London and then um Libya and the the thing that really struck me that probably got me into design and creativity was being in london around 10 years old and this maybe 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 it was around like the post punk new romantic era you know coming into you know mid late 80s i just saw that on the street and i was like couldn't believe people dressed like that you know and i couldn't (laughs) believe people could stand out and you know that whole vibe was very like a crystal clear picture of Wow. I mean, I don't want to be that extreme, maybe, but I do want to adapt to something different. So when I got back to Iowa, I was very influenced by just, you know, buying, you know, different types of vintage product, whether it felt more goth or new romantic or whatever. But it was, you know, my sister and I really kind of made an effort to kind of stand out and, um, you know, have, have a style that was different than what you'd see in Cedar Rapids, Iowa.
0: I, I talk about rocket fuel for inspiration to be in London in sort of post-punk, new romantic era as a ten-year-old. Like what, what oh that, God. that experience. Like, what, what, what did it feel like seeing, seeing like these like I mean, outrageous yeah. styles on the streets and stuff?
1: It was mind-blowing. I mean, I think it was just it was beyond belief because you know, pretty much seeing farm fields and kind of small-town Iowa. You know, it did. It, it was just like something you'd only see on tv maybe but yeah i was i was so invigorated by this that you know you could move to a city and you could be expressive so it really changed my whole perspective of or guided my whole perspective of what i wanted to do um go forward and uh, that whole impression is again like i said it was crystal clear of like wow i see i see a calling in some sort of way you know and um yeah and from there I just, it just it was music music video and just that kind of influence of what London did was really really stuck in my head it still does
0: it's, and so what was that journey then from cultivating your own style to want to to wanting to cultivate style for for other people with like doing your own fashion line and and generating your own sort of styles and looks for other people yeah that's a good question
1: I I eventually got my way and to New York, um, took a bit of a journey, but I got there in my early 20s. And um, my first thought was I was gonna be an actor. And okay. I, I really love this idea of being in sort of the performance art space, whether it was acting or something visual. And I studied um, acting and film right when I moved to New York, um, but also needed a job and a daytime job as one does. And my first job application, I, I went to apply for the Ralph Lauren new store that was opening up. This was like mid 90s, and they were launching Polo Sport, which was new for them, and um, a new store that sort of represented that new product of Polo Sport and their own. With the Ralph Lauren job, they hired me right away, and you know I started working in retail. But then from there, I just started um, curating, basically the the looks and becoming one of the number one salesperson and just working with a lot of the corporate design team. And then the school of Ralph, like even before we started in the store, like there was a lot of um, education on how product is built. And I was just so fascinated by this, this lane of, I never knew how much work went into um, building product, whether it was, you know, on the sports side or, you know, the vintage kind of replica side. And it, it really brought my attention to something that I didn't know, it was in me, but I didn't know I wanted to be a designer at the time, but it really carved my path that way. I, I really like this as well as, you know, acting was a bit challenging for me in the beginning and this came natural. Um, so from there, yeah, the the path from Ralph was what kind of guided me towards being a, a true designer.
0: I'm really interested in the fact that you were interested. I'm an actor myself. Um, I've worked professionally as an actor for, for 10 years. I'm, I'm quite curious that, that moment then, that moment where you're, you're working with Ralph and you're learning about how products are made and and the construction and, and the, the, the sheer, you know, the effort that goes into producing something at that time, how invested were you in wanting to become an actor? Like, has this sort of, this sort of side sort of hustle started to blossom into something else? Was that, were you still focused on being a performer then? And this thing kind of subconsciously crept up on you or was it, or was it something that you were also focused on at that time?
1: I mean, in the beginning, in the beginning part, I felt there were sort of it was relatable because what Ralph was portraying and what he sort of, he was kind of the first person to really start this visual merchandising of experience. When you walk into a store and you're part of the brand, whether you buy, you know, a $3,000 coat or, you know, a $75 polo shirt, you're still part of the brand. So there is this kind of facade that you walk in and you're kind of, engaged and you're part of it so to me the 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 notion of kind of working in design or working at a ralph store and you know dressing the part was relatable to what i was doing in acting to a degree Hmm. but i would say the split off of you know what was my commitment i mean i still sometimes i still think about acting or writing i mean it never goes away but i think um you know it it just became like the path of design was just Kind of laid out in front of me, and they gave me that opportunity. And I also think that you know, for me, like being able, like when I first started in design, I was traveling the world. I was going to the, I was working on the the active performance side, so I was traveling to the Olympics. I was going to all the extreme games and going to all these global flea markets from Paris to London. So I was experiencing a part of you know a role that I, I never dreamed of, you know, as a kid that I'd be doing something like this. So. It's very inviting, but it felt natural. But I think at one point they, they asked me like, do you want to be a designer? Do you want to be an actor? Like, what's your, what's your commitment level before they hired me full time? And I think that kind of pushed me to, you know, Hey, I'm I'm taking the design path here because it's feeling good right now.
0: And uh, yeah, and I think it's really interesting because I don't think the two are uh, from an outsider's point of view. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. It seems like there's an—I mean—you're telling stories with with the designs. Like the, there's an element of theatricality and narrative with collections. It, it, it feel it feels like, and I feel like there's there's echoes b- between the two. Is, is that something you would you would resonate as well that the two aren't mutually exclusive? Oh
1: no, absolutely. I think you kind of hit it spot on. I mean, you especially in the Ralph world, you are you're building concepts, you're building a story, you're building muses. Um, you know, I think that that's part of the the experience that people want to engage. Is like, OK, I want to enter into this world and you, you need to wow me. So it is theatrical for sure. I think that's spot on.
0: And when, when you're at that process, when you're when you're building worlds and building muses, like I'm always interested in that split of wanting to create something that sort of inherent from you within you as a designer and as a creative but also wanting to to maybe follow or spot what you think is a trend that's what I'm interested in is like how how do you follow that how do you have your it's a bit of a a dull phrase but how do you have your finger on the pulse how do you follow where that line is going whilst also sort of staying true to what it is that you want to put out in the world creatively as a designer yeah it's a really good
1: question I've always you know as I you know I oversee a, a big group of designers and I've hired designers along the way and to speak directly to myself and my experience, it's something I feel like it's not something you can train per se. It's something that kind of is natural. It's an instinct. And in my sort of viewpoint, I'm not saying I'm a, I'm, you know, can, can read the future, but um, I do think there's an innate kind of approach to, you have to one, figure out, you know, where you're working. So if, if, in the, experience with Ralph, it, it, you know, he has a very specific um, design language. And I think that if you find ways to enhance or bring newness, but still stay in the framework of what the Ralph vision is, that's that's doing your job and kind of seeing, you know, what you can push forward. As far as seeking out, um, you know, friends or what's to come, it's something that I, I, I think that you don't naturally do if you're going to be relevant in a sense. Like, I don't, I don't think, um, I think it comes from a place of, you know, you, you, have, you have those instincts, but you have those experiences and you know the parameters you're in and what you need to push. Um, so you, you don't want to alienate the, the, the consumer that you're attached to or you're working with the muse, whatever. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's a very tricky question because um, you know, trends come and kind of go. And I've always had an approach of things that what I do I want to last. Um, but I still want to move forward. I'm also a futurist. So it's it's a it's an interesting, we probably could unpack it more, you know, I think.
0: And I also appreciate, it. yeah, exactly. it's quite a dense uh, dense question that is quite heavily heavily populated. I'm interested then you you said then you you're wanting to create stuff that that lasts, but you're also a a futurist as well like is is that a bit of an ebb and flow in your creative process when you're when you're when you're creating the, those two instincts, those two drives?
1: yeah, absolutely. And I think you know if you kind of you know went into it further, I think. It's how you build the garment and what you're making it with and, you know, those kind of components of things that just resonate, you know, whether it's through the material lens or through the silhouette lens or through the mindset of, you know, will this be around, you know, for uh, a while? Is, is there any kind of things that feel... Any parts of what you're building feel like they could, you know, be momentary rather than um, something that you're investing in long term. So it's definitely changed a lot. I think I think that's where the industry is moving towards and continues to move towards, not just in performance wear, but fashion as well.
0: Well, in terms of of your place within that world. So in terms of if we're going to be moving kind of chronologically through your career, so you obviously worked with Ralph and then you had your own A highly successful um, fashion brand as well which won numerous awards and then you were taken on board or drafted to work with the North Face and I mean just sort of moving outside of of the sort of fashion sphere for a second I'm just curious like what that day one when you're first starting what's that like when you're joining such a big brand that has such a big sort of image within the public consciousness who people who with people who subscribe to it what's that like when you first join it the first day in the office like what's your first action is, is taking on such a sort of big large role in a big company
1: oh man i, I was so beyond overwhelmed and felt a huge responsibility i think you know for me uh, you know coming from doing my own line which is you know a few full-timers and a bunch of interns that did remarkable work that I'm coming from indie spirit and consulting spirit into a big corporation again that, you know, I haven't touched corporate probably, you know, 10, 12 years, you know, doing my own line and then going back into it. It was a very overwhelming experience and a responsibility, but it also, you know very exciting, you know, the North Face, what what that stands for. And you know, it's been around for over fifty years and everyone has some sort of attachment to it. And I think um yeah, I mean there's a there's an excitement level and there's also like a uh you know a wow factor of whoa you know, I have a lot of responsibility on my hands.
0: How, how do you sort of put k- kind of quiet in that voice, that sort of voice that's saying you've got a lot of responsibility and sort of maybe potentially being a little bit intimidated by the prospect of the role whilst also being like, I'm here, I'm here and I'm obviously a value and I'm here to, to sort of shake things up and, and change things. How, how, how do you sort of, uh, sort of tally the two sort of internal dialogue?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, and those are the first reactions when I first started, but you have to dial it in and obviously see the objective of why you started and what your your role is so for me it was really bringing a, a design team collectively together and um, how you know that becomes a collaborative effort and just learning you know the team and going deep into um you know what what the needs are and what the objectives are of your role so um yeah I, I quieted those voices down right away after I I you know day one I was like okay let's get to work um and I think that work ethic comes back from my upbringing. It's just like, you know, roll your sleeves up and let's see what we have to do.
0: And I read as well in an interview that you gave to to someone else when you first joined that the, the North Face didn't actually have an archive. Is that correct? correct? I mean, that yeah. is mind-blowing. So you joined, you've only joined relatively recently. It was 2018, is that right?
1: Four years in October will be um yeah four years in October so yeah that sounds about right
0: so only about four years ago it didn't have a, have an archive I mean that's cr- that's crazy to think of such an established brand not having a a, a system in place to archive all, all the materials like, what was your reaction to that
1: same reaction as you I think I was I was basically like what where's the archive we don't have one um well, how can we get our hands on it uh so yeah it was basically the same reaction but fortunately you know there's a lot of um people that, you know, have been with the brand or were at the brand that have been um, contributors for me to like put the archive together. And I think there's a lot of moving parts when you're in a big corporation. And I I, I would, you know, think that, you know, not everyone has it all dialed in, but it's great to have a brand that's over 50 years old that you can actually find pieces still. And um, we built an incredible timeline and archive that, you know, just expresses what the brand is, been and why it's so resilient um so yeah there there was a lot of um moments of like i couldn't believe it but then once we started unveiling the treasures and some things were packed in different spots that we brought together so yeah it, it came together but it was it was a group team effort from you know brand and design to, to build something and it, it i think everyone looked at it as like you know a labor of love for the brand so it actually brought the the brand and creative team together to build this
0: archive that we have now I I mean like it sounds like an amazing sort of team building kind of exercise as well to kind of revisit a brand's history like when the work was done when the archive was finished like if if I don't know what it physically or visually might look like but going through that process and then seeing the end result and seeing it in the wide in the macro like were the things that jumped out at you when you could see that timeline about what the North face was, is, and represents, like were there themes or anything that popped out when you could see it all? Oh yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you think about the North face and some of the things that probably aren't top of mind or I go back to like our first chapter when we first emerged in Berkeley and um, the brand first emerged and it had its first store and had this activism perspective on, you know, the culture that they were representing and the outdoors and being inclusive with the outdoors and the diversity. And I think um, you know, that whole first chapter really related to product wise related to a lot of, you know, kind of a playfully serious approach to um getting outdoors. And there was a whimsical vibe that just, you know, felt pretty good. And then it was, you know, limited colors, but like very happy primary colors. It was Um, maybe four or five materials but multi-use and different silhouettes and equipment and it just represented a a, an interesting time of the 70s 60s and 70s that I think that we haven't been able to express fully but it's now coming out more recent so that chapter one was something that really was very special like any pieces you could find from that and most most of it goes back to the what we call brown label Um, you know the interior label was brown at the time and um, we call it that sort of era and then yeah I mean then you go into like the 80s and 90s and you think about the icons and the music influence we were always a, well we were born in kind of the music influence with the outdoors and um, the Grateful Dead actually performed at our first store opening um, <laughs> <No> and, <way.
0: laughs> yeah
1: which was pretty cool and um, then you think back you know into the the 80s and 90s and 90s obviously with New York being you know something of an important part of our archive and what we built and just continues to be that, that influence and, you know, the icons of what you see in like um, color blocking and primary color and what we call iconic color. just, you know, that coming together too is a big part of the archive and why it's important and why you, you know, you have all this low hanging fruit, but what, what built the brand DNA and why do people recognize the North face? We also did a whole sort of unpack of, you know, who built the the logo, David Alcorn, um, just out of college, you know, was living outside of Yosemite and, you know, he, he designed the, the the logo based off of Yosemite Half Dome. And what that does, that logo, what that does, like, you know, as you know, you know, you can see it from, you know, 30 feet away, but it's probably one of the most important logos in the industry and we did a sort of timeline of how that was built. and. It's pretty incredible just to be able to contact a, a lot of these people that helped build this brand and put them into the archive and, you know, keep it, you know, preserved. So, you know, every, every, every age group within the company or outside the company sees the, the you know, this historic um, brand come to life.
0: I love that thing about go. So the the original designer of of the logo. So you did you get in contact with him or his family or his connections to sort of get his kind of take on on his process behind that? What what was that like? Sort of you oh, sort of wow, right in yeah. the in the future of the North Face, going back to its like its early beginnings and getting his perspective on designing what is now like you say completely synonymous within like modern culture.
1: We found his information through I think um, Facebook and we got in to touch with him. <laughs> no one has spoken to him in ages but once we got a hold of him he was so so nice and so excited to come visit the campus and do a Q&A with the team and we were able to uh, unearth some of his original sort of um, drawings and um, you know what he used as the model for the, the logo and it was just like all this all these treasures that you know you think about that, that again that logo like you know, there's very few brands that have that identity, and just to know what, where it stemmed from and some of the original work that was done in the late '60s. The logo was, I think, created in the '71. So it was, it was a very—I uh, don't know—it felt very, um, I guess, emotional because when he came in, you know, the, the way he talked about how he built it, you know, you could see him kind of watering up and just like how special it is to him and that. He's probably in his you know mid late seventies but him talking about this just felt really really impactful and just you know seeing someone's work you know that is so relevant now as it was when it was built is is pretty yeah it's pretty special
0: does that does that supercharge your kind of you and your design team when you when you see you know how great design like him creating that logo can have this huge ripple effect that can sustain a brand for 50 years does that make you and your team be like right let's roll up our sleeves time let's 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 get to work does it does it work like that when you're in, around someone like oh, yeah. that yeah i mean i think
1: i think that's the great part of meeting um some of these icons we the call icons of the past of the people that built the brand um within common storytelling and be able to bring the design team together and have, you know, these Q and A's and it just connects us to, you know, what made this brand and made made it special. And I think that that's what resonates with the team. And to your point, yeah, I, I think it brought the, the designers closer together, having these sessions because a lot of them, you know, you know, everyone kind of has their day to day and do they have time to interact or time to sit in these forums? Not always. So I think bringing that level of, um, the historic part of the brand to look forward i think it's it's key you know you got to know where you've been and why it's important why it resonated um for future state
0: yeah absolutely one of the icons or one of the sort of sections of the history you were talking about then was obviously Um, sort of early 90s hip-hop scene in in New York and that being kind of synonymous with the North Face now I can't specifically speak to that from personal experience but what I can speak to is obviously I touched on it a bit bit at the beginning but growing up in in Liverpool in the northwest of England like high performance sort of brands the, the North Face and various other outdoor brands were kind of synonymous and co-opted by by large swathes of of sort of inner city working class kind of kids and it's it's still there like this was from my experience in the sort of mid to late 90s like and within within all other sort of major urban areas within within all of the UK like the north face is synonymous with that scene was that was that a conscious decision on the brand's part or was it was it a happy coincidence the sort of the sort of synergy between that
1: Yeah, no, there was no conscious decision. I think it would just, it it happened naturally. And I happened to be in New York at the time working for Ralph Lauren and Polo Sport. And a lot of that started emerging in like the mid nineties. And, you know, there are a few places where you could buy North Face. One of them was Paragon Sports. You still can buy it there, but that was kind of the frequented store of, you know, getting your North Face down jacket. And Hmm. I I think, um, you know, why it was adopted I mean, there's a lot of, there's probably a lot of answers, but I do think something that does resonate with the North phase is like these garments are tested and proven and life-saving for top of mountain product. So the, the cold, you know, street winters in New York, which could get really, really cold, that protection um, component, believe it or not, like there's a te- technical need in 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 New York to, to stay warm, you know, if you're out on, you know, if you're out on New York streets and I think that was part of it. And I also think, you know, the design and the simplicity from the logo to, you know, the blocking, um, it, it just felt, it felt relevant and it felt, um, I, guess, I guess it would feel in a sense, um, just authentic. And I think that that's uh, part of the reason it, it became, you know, such a big movement back then.
0: And I, I totally echo that. I mean, there is the sheer practicalities of it, like having uh, it's not survived, they're not ex- extreme, perhaps as American winters, but a lot of miserable, wet, windy uh, winters in, in the UK. There is just the sheer practicality of like, if you're going to be out, if you're you know, involved within that that scene, you're going to be spending large swathes of your time outside. There is the practical thing of needing to be sort of warm, warm and dry, and it always felt as well like from an outsider looking in, because I would never say that I was part of that scene. If anything, I was intimidated by that scene. I think when I was when I was younger, sp- especially in certain sections of of Liverpool, but there was there was a sort of a status thing I think that came with it because of the perhaps the the sort of price bracket of maybe some of the the technical high performance garments that you produce like having one was 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 a bit of a status symbol as well do you you think that was part of it
1: oh yeah no there's definitely a status symbol like back then of you know wearing the north face seeing that north face half dome logo and knowing you know one from a protection value what that stands for but yeah there was there was a yeah there definitely was a status value and i don't know if it was equate it to a price point, but more just of you know, you're wearing North Face, you know, you know your shit, you know, you know this, this is gonna protect you. And I think that's kind of what resonated and I think um there's a respect level, I think, if you were wearing it.
0: So you mentioned then as well about about the sort of the mountaineering or, or I suppose it's the summit series, which is your kind mm-hmm. of peak performance kind of line. And what I'm what I'm really interested in as well is it's kind of the process in terms of like our R and D with that kind of stuff? Like, what is that... What is that through line? Like, what is the level of R&D that needs to go into a product like that that's going to be tested to the, the, the most extreme kind of conditions before you are happy to sign it off and say, okay, consumers, you can now test it in similar conditions. What, what's that kind of process?
1: When you think about Summit Series product, you know, Summit Series was launched in 2000. It's always been a representation of the pinnacle of North Face products. It was, it, that is always kind of our, our North Star, and, you know, for us to look at Summit Series in that viewpoint, you know, we have a long process to build that type of product. It goes into, you know, R&D on the material, um, wear testing through the athletes, all the feedback from the athletes. There's so much work that goes into, you know, getting this product right. Um, because, again, you know, these, there's life-saving sort of conditions that they have to go up against. You want to get them to the mountain, the top of the mountain as fast as they can. Um, there's a competitive landscape too that uh, gets applied to it, and you know you you want to build the best, and to build the best it takes time. So yeah, there is there's a lot of ingredients that go into it. There's a lot of labor, a lot of sample making, um, and you know it just blows my mind. Um, you know the innovation team that we we have and what we put into um, the summit product that gets you know built, and then we can get it to the consumer um across and i just you know that influences the whole line you know top of mountain all the way to um, what we call
0: off mountain product so what is that timeline then for example like I i don't know like a down jacket or something like that what is the the lead time in terms of a, a sketch on a pad or an idea in your head to me yeah. clicking on the website and ordering one for for me
1: yeah i mean a minimum of two years most likely in, in most cases to two to four years in some cases and i think um you know, we try to obviously make things faster, but, you know, we want to make sure they're ready for the market. And, um, you know, I think that that's, you know, most product, I would say minimum of two years, but it can, you know, some product can take longer, you know, and I think if you're, you're building say uh, you know, a hem suit, which is, you know, super intense and a lot of build goes in, uh, thought and built goes into it. And you think about, you know, what it's going to be used for, you, you have to test it multiple times to make sure it's it's meeting you know, all checking all the boxes.
0: And what's that dialogue like you saying earlier about with with the athletes? Like, how is that that feedback that interplay? How does that work with with you as a designer based on what the kind of input is that that they're giving to you when they when they're testing the the samples or the prototypes out in in real world conditions?
1: Yeah, so w- within the athlete community, we we start from an organic place of just, you know, brainstorming on what's missing from their kit or what would they like better? What is their favorite piece that they're drawn to? And we, we start kind of from a, not a blank board, but kind of think tanking in that sort of way where we, we ideate and we, we have conversations and we start thinking about, you know, what could be the future kit for them um, and what would that look like? And what are those components So early conversations of, you know, talk and, um, concepting. And then from there we start, you know, looking at things through a material lens. Um, and then we start making some prototypes and prototypes and get them to the athletes and get their feedback and how they test them. And, um, and then that, that process continues. And then we get, and once we get the prototype, right, then we go into, you know, first sample and then, you know, continue that, that feedback. Um, but, it's a it's a back and forth continuous um, collaboration and making sure, you know, all the technical components are dialed in. But we also, you know, there's kind of this notion of no performance without styles. And the style component comes in with the design team to partner with the athlete to make sure, you know, we're we're hitting and checking the boxes there as well. So it's it's a it's a lot of back and forth and it's a, a there are incredible relationships with the design innovation team um product team with our athletes that just drive you know the best pinnacle product
0: so what um in terms of the products that you've made have there been any sort of failures have there been anything that's come out that's been a creative failure that perhaps you've sort of drawn and and learned lessons from that perhaps didn't quite didn't quite sort of land in the way that you wanted to
1: no I don't not, I've, <laughs> <laughs>
0: I've been nailing yeah. it <laughs> well I mean well maybe when you were looking back in the archive then like when you were looking were there any things that you were like okay maybe that didn't quite sort of go out in the way that we wanted to is there something we can learn from that
1: I don't know if failure is the term I would say evolving and mm. elevating is where you'd see opportunity so again like you know how do you get to the mountain as fast as you can you need lighter weight product you need more durability you need more wind protection so it's it's evolving the material content and the evolution of you know how we fit and how we um look at product in in the modern lens and i think i would say it's not failure it's more about you know the evolution you know yes you can look at the archive and look at things that we've done in the past that are more analog but like what is the future state of those and how do you you know, continue um, building for the mountaineer, the trail runner, or, you know, steer. So I think, um, I think all of that is just about evolution.
0: Yeah, that feels fair. That feels fair. And when you are, when you are evolving and obviously, you know, there's, the, it feels like for brands at the moment, there's, there's a lot of challenges. I think there's a lot of challenges around sort of sustainability, environmental credentials as well. And I'm, I'm interested when you are at that peak level of performance, how do you tie those two together? So how do you get something that performs the best, but also tallies with making the North Face a more environmentally conscious and sustainable brand as well? Because you want things to perform at peak levels. But if a material that is perhaps recycled or is made out of recycled materials doesn't do that, does that mean that you have to compromise and use something that perhaps isn't so environmentally friendly? And how, how do you sort of strike that balance?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think in the past, maybe in some cases, that was, um, that may have been true in some cases, but future state and what we do, like sustainability is a deep love of the outdoors. And it's been part of the North Face DNA since you know the company was founded in 1971. So I think, you know when you think about our original founders and what their concerns were to keep products out of a landfill and why we became one of the first companies to introduce lifetime warranty felt Like that's our, that's our history. You know, that's, we have a takeoff point that just was, you know, embedded in the brand from its inception. Um, So that part of it is just naturally tied to what we do. I think, you know, to further your question or answer your question, um, you know, I think about um, implementing sustainable products and programs with our supply chain is something we've been doing for decades and our latest environment, environmental commitment to make hundred percent of our top materials recycled regenerative and renewable by 2025 has been in the works for years. Um, You know, I think we're, we're in a place where we're really proud of our progress, what the brand has done. And, you know, we've been doing this for, again, since I said, since 71, just trying new ways to make sure we're we're following these goals. Um, So it's really, we're really, you know, outdoors, sustainability, viewpoint is it's goes hand in hand um so i think we we continue to push forward here and I, i'm hoping um you know that resonates with the consumer.
0: So obviously, we were, we were we were talking about uh, sustainability there, and it feels like the another part of the landscape right now is around um, inclusivity and, and diversity. We're recording this at the moment I, I'm in, in the UK, and there's kind of been a bit of a fallout from the the Euro finals with the issue yet again of 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 racism within football and it's just stoking up once more a lot of conversations around the issue of of diversity and and inclusivity and there's a lot of talk at the moment about diversity and inclusivity within the outdoors within running and within within trail running in, in in particular is do you think the, the the North Face is is contributing in a positive way towards that that debate and discussion and you or do you think there's more that can be done like what what is the North Face actively doing to sort of um sort of state their claim that they're invested in in this discussion?
1: Absolutely. I think um you know even before I started we we've, we've been making huge efforts into you know resetting the barriers of exploration and make it accessible for everyone. I think you know, something we've launched recently is called the Explorer Fund. If you go on our site, you can see some of the efforts being done there that have been um, landing very well. I think the outdoor landscape has changed tremendously in the last, you know, four or five, ten years and continues to evolve. And, you know, there's something about being, you know, the diversity has to come within, within our organization and then show externally. And I think that has to be authentic of, you know, the talent we bring in, how we cast athletes, how we speak to the accessibility of, um, the outdoors is just something that we continue to, um, listen and hopefully, um, it's starting to show even more, but yeah, for sure. It's, it's a big part of what we do and, how we have to be um, bolder.
0: Absolutely. And in terms of going forward, like your the, the motto for for the North Face is never stop exploring. Are there are there things in your sites that are that are are in the future for the North Face that you're planning on adding to that that epic timeline for, for the North Face going forward that you can obviously disclose here. Yeah, without giving away
1: too much of the future, um, something we recently launched was our new trail footwear called Vective. Um Vective and Athlete Tested Lab Proven Technology System. Vective actually. To, you know... Sorry
0: to jump in on you there. That's actually really yeah. so vectiv is vectiv is the it's the the trail running shoe with the with the carbon plate in it, right? Correct. So exactly. That's quite interesting. Did did cause we were talking earlier about um trends and spotting them, like obviously the carbon plate you know this is it this podcast in its essence we we talk a lot about running on this and we've had a lot of discussion about about the about the super shoes and what Nike and, and Adidas and all the other brands was there a was there a bit of a a bit of a pressure to for the North Face to contribute to that to that market? Was there a bit of an onus on you thinking like, okay, we need to we need to put out our own carbon plated shoe so that we can be part of this this sort of burgeoning scene? Yeah, I don't know if it was a, a
1: marketplace uh, pressure component. It was more about how do we solve for the athletes, and we're an outdoor brand, and the trail is something that we obviously own and need to continue to you know, perform and make sure our athletes are equipped to do their best, you know, training and whatnot. So I think it was more about, you know, an athlete problem solve. And I think that's where it came from was just, you know, how do we, how do we get, you know, the athletes to that place where they have a a trail shoe that can get them in that, that type of training, that elite training, and then scale from that. But it's incredible what the outcome is, it's huge success for us and it'll continue to evolve. And I think that, you know, from a performance lens, like you see the build, but, you know, from a stylistic lens, it's it's naturally kind of fits into what you just mentioned, like, you know, how everyone's going a little bit more outdoor and performance in their design language. And it kind of went hand in hand, but yeah, it took off.
0: It's, it's very true what you say that I think feel like there's been a bit of a, a, a huge kind of embracement of, of the outdoor kind of visual style. I'm not a fashion person so you've got to excuse my poor terminology but the- I'm not anymore I'm not a fashion
1: person anymore either
0: <laughs> <laughs> but the the outdoor aesthetic um, feels like it's crossed over for people who might not call themselves outdoorsy kind of people it feels like there's large swathes of popular culture now that subscribe to like that sort of performance um, apparel kind of design style like North Face and Arcteryx and various other kind of brands people who wouldn't call themselves mountaineers or trail runners might wear it in central London like what I suppose it's there's an element of it is perhaps could be traced through to that the thing we were talking about earlier with sort of urban culture in 90s but it feels like Mm. it's kind of broken out of that a little bit and maybe people who wouldn't say that they're part of that kind of urban scene are still wearing it why, why do you think that aesthetic is is becoming popular i suppose is what my question is in a very long-winded way well i think it, it
1: kind of captures the whole conversation of you know outdoors and the importance of you know wearing authentic product that is tested on athletes so that is life-saving that is top of mountain that scales so i think this notion of And, you know, this notion of like throwaway or momentary trend or things that don't matter. I think in the younger generation, they want things that last, that have versatility, that can perform. And I think naturally, you know, you think about versatility. So you want, you know, design and style lines to have longevity. So hand in hand, I think, you know, how it's reached, you know, you know, New York, Paris, London, all these kind of more contemporary markets that normally fall into kind of the fashion umbrella that outdoor is influenced. I think it, it just shows like the importance of knowing how your product is built, how it, you know, what's the sustainability uh, component to it. What it's purpose led product, right. At the mm-hmm. end of the day, like that's a big reason why I left, you know, the industry to move into more um, kind of full circle go back into performance industry because you're solving a need and you're making a garment that, is thoughtful and in its intent that doesn't you know sit in a landfill or you know is built to perform and last you know a lifetime hopefully and I think that's that's kind of like where I feel like the world is moving towards it's it's less frivolous it's less momentary
0: yeah and it resonates with people as well because when something is built for purpose like if you subscribe to that ideal as an individual you will you'll talk people's ear off to tell them about it as well. Like, if someone asks about what it is that you're wearing, you're like, well, this is this, and it's designed for this, this, and this. And I think interesting, I think with the the sort of apparel where when you see, like... Maybe in London, you see like guys outside of the pub and they're wearing like very expensive sort of waterproof jackets. I think maybe it's a male thing. I don't want to sort of do a whole sweeping generalization here, <laughs> but I'm speaking from personal experience here. But guys love tech and gear. Yeah, There's an element of that. Like, you know, I'm my wife has probably chastised me numerous times for saying you don't need to spend a certain couple of hundred pounds on a sort of uh, alpine, repelling, waterproof jacket. But there's a certain element of, of maybe guys that are like, Yeah, but I quite like it because it is like what you're saying. It's something that's so highly specced and built for purpose. There's something comforting about that as well. I don't know know what it is I'm trying to articulate, but there's something nice in knowing what it is that you're wearing is is the best tool for the job, even if you might not find yourself rappelling down the north face of of Mount Everest when you're down the local pub having a pint with your mates. Do you know what I'm trying to say?
1: I I definitely know the, the the consumer, the person you're talking about. And it's definitely, yeah, I mean, it's I'm me. hoping, you know, there is, <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm hoping you're, you're getting out on the weekends to do those adventures because, you know, there is that element of when I think of someone wearing that, I'm thinking, Oh, they, they have this for the actual the activity, but they know the versatility component can be worn, mm-hmm. you know, at the pub. And, you know, but I do hear like, there is that also protective notion, but also, there's, a, there's something about being proud of the the purchase because you know how much effort went into it um, is probably part of it too.
0: I think as well, and you're right as well, because there's part of me that thinks like, a, 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 you know what it also, I feel like it's also, it feels like a down payment on an outdoor pursuit that you want to do in the future when time allows. When you buy those kind of products, it's like this is designed for keeping you warm when you're camping in, in Scotland and it's freezing cold. And I'd love to do that. I maybe can't do that right now, but I want to do it in the future, but I'm going to get this now. So I have it. So when that moment comes and someone says, Hey, do you want to come to wherever for the weekend? I've got that gear and I know I'm prepared and I won't be like, God damn it. I wish I had that down jacket. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's awesome. I think that's spot on.
1: I love that.
0: <laughs> it feels like it does. It feels like like with all the, the gear that I buy, it always feels like it's a down payment on that adventure that I will have i don't want to that i don't want to regret not having when i'm older that's what it feels like to me like it's it's like that it's like get it now and go on that that exploring trip or hike across whatever mountains it is because when you're there and you've got the gear and you're enjoying the experience and you're not hating it because you're freezing or or you are soaked through you you won't regret that purchase there you go there's some new marketing copy for the north face for you no i love it
1: use it use it as your motivation for Looking that expedition I love it like I think that that's that's a great yeah we'll we'll, we'll steal that from you <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right well that that feels like uh, that feels like a nice point to to end our conversation on um uh, Tim I, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on the big run and, and for sharing your story and and for talking uh, so candidly about about the the North Face thank you so much for coming on oh thank you Daniel thanks for having me Big thank you to Tim for for coming on and sharing his story and the story of the North Face. Fascinating insight there. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, Be sure to subscribe to be the first to hear when the next episode is released. And follow us on Instagram at The Big Run Podcast, where I'm going to be teasing some future episodes that are going to be mixing it up a little bit. I've been out in the field making some new audio adventures that are going to be... A little bit different to your traditional zoom interview fair so make sure you uh, follow us on instagram at the big run podcast to see if you can guess where where the show is going to be going because we're going to be mixing it up a little bit with the next couple of episodes and uh, as always if you're able to and uh, want to quite frankly i know this morning i didn't feel like running but if you want it and you can and you're lucky enough to do so get out there and get running i'll see you next week thanks for listening